had to do something where we had to spit into a tube to isolate DNA. And I think I was new to it, so I thought I'd demonstrate it. And then I realised how impossible it is to spit into a tube whilst teaching at the same time. So I didn't do that again. And I got my demonstrators to do that. It was too glamorous. should prepare a batch early and spend all morning spitting into oh, It's just, it's not a nice lab practical that. Hello and welcome back to the Pint of Science podcast, the podcast that uses the tried and tested formula of scientist plus beer equals banter for your entertainment each week. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. Where have you been? To make you feel at home, allow us to introduce ourselves. I'm Callum Davidson. And I'm Jim Hake. And this podcast accompanies the excellent Pint of Science Festival. Jim, hit me with an elevator pitch. <coughs> Pint of Science Festival is a science festival that brings science to the people by... Let's <laughs> see how fast I can do it. Okay. <coughs> Pint of Science Festival is a science festival that brings science to the people by inviting researchers to give fascinating talks at their local pubs and cafes for three nights each May. This year it's Monday the 20th to Wednesday the 22nd. Pint of Science talks are for everybody, so you needn't consider yourself a scientist to enjoy one of our events. Tickets are just £4, and for that you get to spend an evening filling your brain with knowledge and your stomach with whatever you choose. Head over to pintofscience.co.uk to see what's on offer across the UK, or if you're listening from further afield, then head to pintofscience.com and navigate to your own country's events. Now today we're making our first pub return visit. We find ourselves once again at the Salutation Inn in Manchester, where this time we're catching up with Professor of Immunology and Public Engagement Expert Sheena Cruikshank. Sheena works on the immune system. More specifically, she looks at the crosstalk between different immune cells and how this shapes our immune response when we encounter something that really shouldn't be in our bodies. We sat down for a pint with Sheena to talk about some of the unexpected features of the immune system, the hot topic of the microbiome, as well as the glamorous world of faecal transplants, which are exactly what they sound like. Mmm, delightful. As well as the science, we also found out more about Sheena's award-winning public engagement work and her thoughts on life as a scientist. So as ever, get comfy, crack open a drink to accompany this episode, and douse your mind in a refreshing pint of science. This podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors, Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. So if you're inspired by what you hear today and you want to learn a little of the science behind it yourself, check out Brilliant.org or download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan. You get asked an awful lot, I expect, to explain the immune system to people. And time and time again, in fact, it happened on your Life Scientific episode, people <laughs> jump immediately to the military analogies. So we thought it might be fun to see if you're able to, in sort of just a minute style, do you think you can explain to us what you do with no hesitation, repetition, and not using any military analogies for the about, immune system? About the immune system. <laughs> yeah. And explain what I do or what the immune system is. I think probably start general assume the people listening have no knowledge of the immune system and then you can boil down or to even people in this room that might not know what it is. <laughs> all right. All right. i can't guarantee i'll do no hesitations so. that's fine okay so your body's evolved to deal with lots of germs and things and your immune system needs to be able to recognize those but it also needs to be able to recognize the other things that come into our bodies that are good for us like allegedly our food, um, as well as the microbiome, the kind of microbes that help us digest our food and make lots of important vitamins and things. So the immune system decides which is good and which is bad. And my research looks at how the immune system understands which is good and which is bad, because that could be really important to understand why sometimes we get long-term inflammation that we can't get rid of. Okay, that was oh, pretty cool. good. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Although there was repetition of which is good and which is bad, but I'll let that pass on this occasion. I can see how easy it'd be to slip into sort of the invaders and fighting off and all the military jargon. I think the overwhelming job of the immune system is actually as peacekeeper because most of the time it's ignoring. So it's going, no, this is good, even though you might have eaten a really interesting spicy curry, I don't want to have an immune response to it. You know, and the microbiome is doing so many important things for our health and occasionally of course we do actually respond badly to things that are actually fine and that's where you have autoimmune issues and the immune system becomes even more complicated than it is 
just as a defense mechanism it plays a role in so many different things well i think the thing to, to remember is that all the the mechanisms that your immune system has to deal with pathogens is basically what's happening when your immune system's going wrong so when an allergy is reacting against something harmless and in autoimmunity it's reacting against you and again that's something it should normally ignore but it's using all its weapons <laughs> but now against you some of the stuff you've been asked to come and speak to the media about most recently. There was the recent tragic incidents of mislabeling of food leading to some deaths from quite severe allergic reactions. I mean, I got the sense from the answers you were giving at the time that we actually still don't really quite know why allergies seems to be on the rise. I mean, is that the case? So we're seeing more cases of severe allergic reactions sort of globally? Well, it's not necessarily globally. Uh, so allergies are where your body's reacting to something harmless, so it should be ignoring it. And we are seeing these increase, particularly in developed countries. So it's not necessarily globally. And the reasons we get an allergy are partially genetic. So there is sort of genetic factors. So if you have a family member who gets an allergy, you're a little bit more likely to get an allergy. But if you look in identical twin studies, we can see that that doesn't guarantee that you'll get an allergy. Mm -hmm. So that means the environment's important. Yeah. So the environment is accounting for a lot of the reasons for this. And what is that? So there's been lots of ideas about, is it because in these more developed countries, in these particularly in urban cities, we've become very clean and we don't necessarily get all the infections that we used to get in childhood. We have smaller families. So this was one idea that was bandied around for a long time by David Strachan, who's a doctor, and that was called the hygiene hypothesis. We then moved on to sort of thinking about, well, what is it about the microbes that inhabit us? Could it be the types of infections we get or something to do with the microbiome? And there's a little bit more evidence perhaps to support that and that's the old friends hypothesis so the idea that certain microbes become our friends because they educate okay. develop our immune yeah. system but now we also think that the microbes around us are important so the things that we're breathing in and we're exposed to and this could also be important when you think about pollutants yeah. and factors like that because they could be having massive effects and certainly if you have something like asthma you are more likely to get a worsening of the symptoms in polluted conditions and there's lots and lots of evidence. My housemate for example is very allergic to peanuts but also minor allergic to lots of other little things. Are you more likely to be allergic to multiple things? Is, is there sort of some relationship between all of them? Well I think the, the, the relationship may be that you're perhaps a little bit predisposed to, to be allergic and you can be allergic to more than one thing but some people will only ever be allergic to one thing. Why that happens we don't know and sometimes it might be because the thing that your immune system is reacting to looks similar in more than one instance. <laughs> yeah. So allegedly, and I might be getting this wrong, there's a, a particular tree pollen that looks a little bit like the thing we react to in strawberries. So often people, I think it's birch tree pollen, will react to strawberries as well because oh. they look a little bit alike. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So it could be because of that or it oh, could yeah. just be unlucky and you've got lots of the kind of combination of factors, the environment yeah. and the genetic that are... So it's literally your body just thinking it's something that looks a bit like it. So it thinks it's under attack and just goes, oh God. Oh yes. Well, it's using, it's using normal yeah. mechanisms and the mechanisms it uses are the mechanisms that are particularly adapted to deal with things like parasitic worms. So they're really good at getting rid of parasitic worms. If you think that all the symptoms, the mucus, the muscle contractions that you have, this is all brilliant for pushing a worm out of your guts, eh? Nice. But mm. horrible if you're reacting to something yeah. harmless. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. On a sort of fundamental level then, allergy versus infection, we're talking about them as two things the immune system reacts to, but they're actually quite fundamentally different, right? So to me, an infection is something nasty and buggy getting inside you and your body's like, oh, that's going to make me ill. Whereas an allergy is just literally your body reacting to some kind of molecule that gets in there that it just... I don't know why I'm trying to explain this. Am I getting this right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. It's using the same. It's using the same approach uh -huh. as it would to deal with something horrible. So your immune system's. I, I guess it's really got a bit confused. I was going to say, is it just? Is, is there no sort of e evolutionary benefit to why allergies would have evolved as a thing? Is it just a quirk of? This defense system has 
got it wrong. Well, I think this is where things like the old friends hypothesis really came into play, looking at the links between people having worms and people not having allergies. I mean, it's not strictly true, but I think the ideas of, of broadly speaking, there being a correlation between still having worms and not having allergies versus us, say, in the UK, where we've got rid of all of our worm infections. We used to have them. <laughs> you know, we look just a few hundred years ago. We're doing research at the moment at Quarry Bank Mill, so I've got a history biology project partnership and we're looking at the apprentices there and we can see evidence that these apprentices had worm infection so that's around 1860. Can we define the old friends hypothesis because I've heard that we've said it a few times now and I'm not sure that I'm clear on it still (laughs) so the old friends hypothesis is that the types of infection that we're exposed to or the types of microbes that inhabit us have changed and they were important for educating our immune system and creating balance in our immune system so is it as simple as i'm thinking the microbiome when i hear that is that pretty much the old friends hypothesis is microbiome and or infections right okay the other factor, of course, that could come into play with the microbiome is the diet that we eat. So our diets have changed as well. So yeah. you can see how all these multi-factors are coming together to create. So our bodies must be a bit stressed a lot of the time about <laughs> things that it's not used to happening. Well, I guess it's used to them <laughs> yeah, now, but it, but, it, it you know, possibly isn't, yeah. isn't great. And we know the Western diet isn't particularly <laughs> yeah. brilliant for us. <laughs> so the microbiome is kind of like a hot topic right yeah. now. It seems to, it seems yeah. to crop up almost everywhere in everything from like giving us resistance to poisons to certain like conditions you wouldn't even necessarily associate it with I mean is this one of your specialisms then in the lab right now do you spend a lot of time focusing on the microbiome Yes, we absolutely do spend time focusing on the microbiome. We're really interested to understand how the changes in the microbiome will change the relationship with with us. So looking at the cells that sit on top of our barrier sites, like our skin and our gut, and also the immune cells, how it can change the way that they're they're reacting. So we definitely do a lot, but I'm not a microbiologist. It's really looking at that immune well, this is it. I was thinking it's, it seems a bit unfair to quiz you too heavily on the microbiome, being as that probably encompasses quite a lot of different kinds of I'll science. I'll do there. my best. <laughs> so the microbiome is the kind of plethora of different organisms that line our our guts, essentially, right? So, or is it everything yeah, within is our it bodies? Everything, is it all the little beasties? And it's all, all the microbes that live in and on us. So in, we've got so the entire body. Into our entire body. Oh. So the gut is where most of the microbes are, but these could be uh, yeast, viruses, uh, fungi, few parasites quite possibly as well as bacteria it's just at the moment we know most about the bacteria i totally jump straight to guts whenever i think about it i just think of the guts immediately well that is where the bulk of them are the bulk of them are in the large intestine but you have a lot of microbes elsewhere on your body and they're really really diverse we've got about 38 trillion per that's, person that's a lot. on average <laughs> so that, don't know how many zeros that is but it's a, a lot that's of a zeros <laughs> oh how many people are on the earth again <laughs> Less than that. Well, I can picture about a hundred people before I start yeah, to lose yeah. track. So there's a lot. Okay. Yeah, our, our microbes are. And most, so most of the little, the little friends that we've got hanging around, is there like a ratio of sort of, you know, beneficial to ones that have maybe a negative effect? I don't know. Well, I, I think that question is really about thinking about what what the microbes are doing in a certain place and yeah. the balance of them. So if you take something like your, your skin, you've got all these different zones. Your microbes not the same across your skin so if you look at your oily zones they've got particular communities you look at your folds and creases <laughs> they have another it's very different niche as you can imagine <laughs> versus the sort of very dry areas like the back of your arms they, they will have they will have very diverse populations on the back of your arms but there's much much fewer of them and then if you factor in oh the sort of moisturizers you use sun exposure clothes chafing that's going to change the microbial community so you can imagine the diversity you've got just even on your skin so if you take something like staphylococcus epidermidis which is a really common skin bacteria it's fine save it's on the back of our arm but if it gets into your uh, urethra when you're having a catheter it causes really bad infections so yes it's a commensal (laughs) but in the wrong place it's really problematic and even things like clostridium difficile which very famously cause really nasty diarrhea many of us will have that as part of our normal microbial community 
in our gut but when that becomes sort of really dominant and you haven't got enough diverse bacteria to sort of compete with it then it can cause the problems that it causes so sometimes it's about that balancing act because so there's it's communities. like a little survival yeah. of the fittest going on inside uh, your body the to whole time degree, yeah and it's about having the community so generally speaking we want lots of diversity so they're living in harmony and they're, they're all kind of nurturing and supporting each other they're producing different factors that will help another bacteria and so on and so on wow. well i have a really stupid question which is like <laughs> why don't we make ourselves ill the whole time if there's yeah. these colonies that can live in one place and be fine but cause problems in the other but I think you sort of answered that by saying it's to do with the balance I suppose. It's to do with the balance and also I think one of the the important distinctions that your immune system uses to be able to tell threat from benefit is that something um, that is threatening will also cause damage so your immune system can detect sort of microbial patterns that are very highly conserved but it can also detect damage patterns and those combination of those two things will be more likely to trigger a pro-inflammatory response whereas if you've just got commences and they're not burrowing down into your into your kind of barrier sites then they'll probably be fine i have an immune system question that i've been wanted to ask and you might get asked this a lot this might be a stupid pop culture question but is the five second rule real (laughs) if you drop a piece of food on the floor you're still okay to eat it if you pick up before five seconds have gone. Well, think about it. We're constantly transferring bacteria between us all the time. (laughs) Every time you touch a surface, every time you talk, every time you sneeze, you are exchanging several million bacteria, and that's happening very quickly. So, yes, when you drop something, it's going to be picking up some bacteria. The question is whether or not they're... They're harmful, and I guess often they okay. won't be. I mean, but if they are harmful and it's three seconds, <laughs> yeah. that's still good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you drop it in a kind of nice, nice vat of yeah. some horrible salmonella, yeah. go for it. Yeah. But the fact that I am still here alive today exactly. means that it can't be that bad. Exactly. I think it's, it's usually a bit of common sense. You know, yeah. if it's toast butter side down, you pick it up and it's really kind of gritty then that's just not going to be very nice to eat exactly and if you've dropped it for two seconds in Sheena's lab possibly worth disposing of it immediately I'm sure you will be eating the lab exactly so as far as the microbiome goes as we are all carrying this host of organisms the whole time does it not get obliterated the first time you take a course of antibiotics for an infection that's got into you or even a thorough shower if if you like you know (laughs) Not in those folds. Well, I mean, I think so. For my for antibiotics, it will depend on the antibiotics. So yes, it will knock down some of the bacteria. You can't ablate all of the bacteria. I suppose you'd probably die if you got rid of them all in one go. Yeah, so you you will definitely knock down down some of them. And the studies have looked at the effects of, of antibiotics at different ages. So particularly if you're very young, sort of under the age of four, antibiotics will have a more dramatic effect on your microbiome because it's still forming. Mm. So it's going to be much more vulnerable to that. But actually in adults, our microbiomes are relatively resilient and they will bounce back. And so people have looked and after about seven days or so, and I can't, can't swear that's the exact accurate time, the microbiome does seem to bounce back relatively well. Um, and so that's bounced back to the sort of state it was in before in that individual, because I'm assuming yeah. we don't all have the same rough microbiome. There's, there's sort of trends that are the same. So for example, your gut's very dominated by Clostridiales and Firmicutes. But there will be sort of subtle variations between people, which will depend on your diet. Also, families tend to be a bit more similar to each other and that kind of thing. So you sort of get, you do see kind of clusters. And also, if we look in mice, we can tell which cage the mice have been in. We can tell which mum they've had because there's a really strong maternal effect. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily true (laughs) as we turn into adults uh, for humans, but certainly children would be much more likely to be like their parents. And could you tell what bit of the world someone is from by their microbiome? Would someone in, say, like Australia have a different one to someone in Norway or something like that? That's a really interesting question. (laughs) I I think at the moment we probably don't know enough about it. However, there have been studies looking at uh, groups, say, in Burkinfaso versus groups in the UK, and we can see real differences there, but that's dependent on the diet Diet, um, more than anything else. You may see some differences in skin. I don't think there's there's so many studies looking 
though. Oh, I'm aware of the look of that. <laughs> We've spent so much time on this podcast, we're probably starting to share a microbiome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. you've, you've been transferring. <laughs> yeah. Just think about that. Every, and of course, you get it from your pets as well. So, you know, when your pets. Oh, no, yeah. my dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but of course, some of those won't survive. But that's an interesting <laughs> kind of quandary. If you look at a, a clean versus a dirty toilet seat, the clean seat, the allegedly clean seat, might actually have more fecal matter on it than the dirty one because, because over time as you as people sit on it they replace they outcompete that fecal those fecal microbes which are largely anaerobic they like they don't like oxygen so they'll gradually die off and be replaced with skin ones and that's staph epidermidis <laughs> which of course is less damaging for you. So technically, after time... Oh, oh God. <laughs> so don't clean your toilets. <laughs> no, no, I, I do think you anyway. should clean your toilets, but it, it's interesting to kind of think that maybe... So what sorts of things then does a out-of-kilter microbiome, or even just a certain type of microbiome, predispose you to? What sorts of things could that affect? The easiest way to simplify lots and lots of studies is that, generally speaking, less diversity in your microbiome, so less varied microbiome, tends to be associated with a lot more conditions. So, for example, um, you see changes in things like inflammatory bowel disease, things like skin wounding, which is something that we look at. We found that, you know, just having an imbalance in bacteria at the start, where you have a lot of one particular type, changes the the wound healing response, changes the dynamics of it. So, there's all sorts of things. And when they look at octogenarians, you know, people who've aged really, really, really well, (laughs) they have really nice, diverse bacteria in their guts. But when they've compared it with people who are kind of a bit frail and aren't doing so well, they have very, very sort of hardly diverse at all. It must be so hard to tease out the causal relationship there, I guess. There must be so many differences between... I think I think if it comes down to the fact that the microbes are all working in communities, so they're having sort of set functions and sort of sustaining each other. So if you're knocking out sort of functions, then that's going to have an impact on supporting all sorts of things for your health, like supporting your gut barrier. So your gut barrier relies on that relationship with the microbes, supporting the way your immune cells work certain microbes in your gut have been shown to be really important for helping you develop things like regulatory t-cells which calm down your immune response so you can imagine all of these things getting a little bit knocked uh-huh. if, if you can't have the right yeah. community as the pint of i suppose i feel obliged to ask how do they feel about pints <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they like too much alcohol, <laughs> um, and I think that has lots of sort of knock-on effects. I do believe they might be important in helping you metabolise aspects of your alcohol, but um, I must confess it's, it's not an area not. I've tried to think <laughs> very much. Of course, microbes are very important for helping make alcohol. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a lot of fun in the lab to yeah, yeah. experiment on that, I imagine. Getting my drunk, yeah. I'm definitely doing. I'm doing my bit for the study right now, yeah. Eating strange fermented foods is supposed to be great, isn't it? I saw a whole talk on the microbiome that was incredible, but at the very end was slightly offset when um, a slide was brought up that said sponsored by Yakult, which made us all briefly (laughs) question... A little bit cynical. Potentially. I mean, I suspect the science was all still great. It was just something about having the yoghurt there at the very end that made us all a bit like, hmm. There's two different things to unpick there. So we've got prebiotic foods which are foods that kind of nurture your your microbiome so they would be things like the fibrous foods that i referred to so you know pulses and things particularly good versus probiotic foods which are about trying to reintroduce or introduce potentially beneficial bacteria and there seems to be lots of ways that people try and do that and there's lots of questions as to which forms are better and whether the bacteria gets to where it needs to get to and whether in fact that could actually be quite damaging in some incidents. So the, the research is really split about probiotics, if I'm brutally <laughs> honest. So that, some studies it? say, no, they're really not brilliant. And mm. some studies say they are. So I think it's worth sort of thinking about what you're taking them for and what the benefit of them could be. So some studies say they could help that kind of, you know, the slightly unsettled tummy you might have after antibiotics. Some studies say yes. Some studies say no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've actually done some studies back in skin again, where we've taken extracts from probiotic bacteria and we've used these to see if they can impact on pathogenic bacteria on and look at skin barrier as well so we've shown that the extracts of these bacteria so lysates can stop 
pathogenic bacteria growing so well. They seem to really have quite a damaging effect on the pathogenic bacteria. And they even then help the skin epithelial cells, the cells that line the skin, kind of knit back together okay. more quickly. So there can be some really interesting potentials from them, but we're not applying live bacteria there. We're applying something that's within the bacteria. So I was a cesarean birth, and I remember chatting to you, I think it was actually my osteopath who I saw for a while told me that that will have had a huge effect on my microbiome and it could have influenced all manner of aspects of my health. So how does that work? Your, your microbiome is affected by how you're delivered. Yes, it is. Wow. <laughs> Cesarean birth, you're more likely to, at least initially, have skin-type microbes colonizing you. Uh, Whereas if you have a vaginal birth, you're more likely to have vaginal and fecal yeah. microbes colonizing you in that, in that initial stage. And then the next sort of things that build up are how you're fed. So whether you're breastfed or bottle fed, again, that will change the types of microbes that you will be acquiring. So it's really going to be changing the establishment of those initial kind of microbes mm -hmm. that, that sort of turn into your diverse microbial community. But that's also then shaped by the people you hang out with, yeah. um, <laughs> as well as the foods that you'll go on to eat and the pets that you'll go on to cuddle yeah. and the five second rule that you lick your toys. So all of these other factors will come into play. So it, 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 it may, have, I don't know if, if anybody has actually looked genuinely as to whether it has a huge long-term impact, but it certainly will affect your initial development of your microbiome. Well, it never even yeah. occurred to me that that's obviously like, yeah, you get a kind of different first introduction to the world of germs based on how you're born. Although there is some evidence that's starting to emerge that the placenta is not completely sterile now and there could be a little bit of microbial transfer happening. Oh, right, yeah, okay. It might be microbial products and that might be important for starting to kind of kickstart things in our body. Well, one of the ways to study the microbiome is obviously to have a look at poo. And this is something that, once again, you must get slightly irritated. Every interview, I wonder how long you, you can last before <laughs> someone mentions poo to you. But one of the things I was reading about was fecal transplants yes. and the whole world of fecal transplants. So should we believe the hype around fecal transplants? And maybe, first of all, what are they? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think you need to say what they are. Yeah, they yeah. are really because I, I, I honestly don't know, and it sounds terrifying. It's, it's remarkably <laughs> close to what it sounds like. Yeah, it's remarkably <laughs> close to what it, it sounds like. Mm. Um, essentially, a fecal microbial transplant, the idea behind it is about uh, replacing your own gut microbiome with that of somebody else's which you would usually do with um, an enema, perhaps some antibiotics as well, to really try and kind of flush out a lot of your, your indigenous microbes. And then you uh, blitz up some <laughs> microbes. It is with a blender, yeah. really it is. <laughs> and you reinsert those in a variety of ways that I'd rather not go into. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. So this, this is a genuinely important medical procedure. Okay. So we talked really at the start about Clostridium difficile <laughs> infection. Now, if you have that Clostridium difficile overgrowth in your gut, you're having really nasty gut inflammation, really awful diarrhea, you're very, very unwell, and it doesn't respond well to antibiotics. But if you give somebody a fecal microbial transplant, they get a brand new microbe microbiome, uh, okay. and they're absolutely fine. Oh, wow. But that has to be done under medical supervision. <laughs> you have to screen whoever you're using yeah. to make sure that you're not putting anything on toward into your microbes and there have been unintended consequences one person for example became obese so she got the microbiome from a sibling who was obese and she although she was thin she became obese after she had the microbiome because the microbiome changes uh -huh. so it literally obesity. affects something like obesity it to can, that extent yeah it can change change that although that's the end of one but there is sort of evidence to show the microbiome could be important in wow. obesity has that been shown in, in other species yes so, okay. definitely there's also some interest in the kind of uh, well-being market <laughs> i was gonna say yeah are people in, blitzing up their own uh, yeah in using <laughs> In using fecal microbial transplants because it's been linked with so many conditions. So changes in the microbiome have been linked to obesity, to allergy, to autoimmune diseases, to depression, to anxiety. So wow. people 
we'll try this as a, as a sort of... In this whole field, there must be so many snake oil people that are willing to grab one little sort of bit that they've heard and use it to try and spin a whole story about it. It sounds kind of dangerous. The other thing that we were quite interested in the lab is it's not just the poo that could be important. If you look in the large intestine, you also have a really thick mucus lining that sits on top of your cells. (laughs) And you've got loads of microbes that reside in that. And they're so close to to us that they're probably the most important ones for our health. Yet if you look in a poo sample, they're not the ones that are terribly well represented in that poo sample. So it could be more important to understand which ones are in the mucus and try and check that we're actually putting them back because they might not be affected ah. by a faecal transplant. So you just blitzed the poo, drank it down, <laughs> yeah. and it's not even the right yeah, stuff yeah, you yeah. got. Sheen is a fountain of knowledge when it comes to our innermost goings-on. But how did we get so complex? How did these incredible microbiomes develop inside us and all over us? This podcast is made possible with help from Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org is a website and app which teaches you science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and then explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. Each problem provides you with a skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more, and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck. And Brilliant.org have courses on computational biology, which can help you learn the basics of calculating what makes us tick, which is a great place to start off. We've put a link to Brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast. The first 200 people to sign up through the link will get 20% off their premium plan. I did a bit of oncology, which is obviously science pertaining to cancer. Uh, I know that immunotherapy is a potentially very promising area of study. So again, rather than me blathering on, what is immunotherapy against cancer? How does that work? So immunotherapy is a way to try and use our immune system to treat whatever disease, in this case cancer. Immunotherapy is also used to treat other diseases like allergy and autoimmunity. So it's understanding how the immune system works and then using it for therapy. Sure. That's really long-winded. No, no, that that works. So there's lots of different approaches that are being used in cancer. One approach is taking the cells that educate the adaptive immune response, educate the T and B cells, but particularly the T cells. If we take those cells out of a patient and we take the tumour out of a patient and then mash up the tumour and put it back in those cells, and these are called dendritic cells, the idea is you can put the dendritic cells back in the patient and they will now know how to educate the T cells to start killing tumours. So this is called dendritic cell therapy and it was the dream of Ralph Steinman who won the Nobel Prize a a few years ago and unfortunately he died before he could receive it. Um, He discovered dendritic cells and then he went on to, to sort of pilot this this type of approach and unfortunately initially it didn't work very well so although it was really safe it didn't work as well as was hoped and it turns out that that's because as we understand more about oncology and cancer we know things like the tumor will have lots of different sites on it that could have an effect on the immune system it could be dampening down the immune system so we have to think about which bits of the tumor we use we also know more about the immunology we now know there's lots of flavors of dendritic cells so it's really important to think about putting in the right dendritic cells we also know more about how dendritic cells get switched on so now with all of these modifications that we can do you can really think about this being something that will be used more and it is being used in trials another type of Nobel Prize winning (laughs) immunotherapy was awarded the Nobel Prize last year and this was the use of checkpoint therapy so this is taking the idea that your immune system's got lots of checks and balances so it doesn't inappropriately react (laughs) and tumors are pretty good at making them have those checks and balances so essentially putting the brakes on the immune response and going no because ideally your body would spot that cancer cells aren't healthy and eradicate them immediately absolutely so the immune so in a cancer it might be putting those brakes on now that we understand what those checkpoints are in 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 t-cells those t-lymphocytes again that means we can block those breaks from happening Mm -hmm. so that we can keep the t-cells switched on which will enable them to kill the tumour. And we've discovered, or we, not me, 
<laughs> two, two major ta- targets have been discovered. One's called CTLA-4 and the other one's called PD-1. So they were jointly, the, the people who've been working on that were jointly awarded the Nobel Prize last year. And because they're different targets, you could apply them both together. And you could even look at a scenario where they could be applied in combination with dendritic cell therapy or a conventional cancer therapy. So that's just some of the examples. Wow. Obviously, there are a huge range of extremely exciting things about immunology once you're within that field. But what motivated you to get into immunology? Because, I don't know, you know, it's quite a, yeah. quite a niche thing, quite a complicated thing. What sent you down that route? So I, when I was quite little, my brother was a lot older than me and he really, really liked zoology. He was absolutely fascinated by the living world. And I don't know how he tolerated it because he was a good eight years or so older than me. But he used to um, let me kind of come with him and we'd go on these hikes down to the beach um, where we would rock pool all day and he wanted to have a tank at home which he did ultimately set up that sustained all these different creatures from from these rock pools where he could study them so he used to talk about them and explain them he'd draw them he got me so fascinated so I was always kind of you know watching them one of my funniest memories is seeing my brother he's balancing he's got his trousers all the way rolled up he's balancing in this rock pool it's really deep and we can see this sort of streak of grease lightning going across the sand because there's actually a a kind of flatfish in there and he was determined to catch it and it was mostly him flailing around like a gangly teenager (laughs) and falling over (laughs) well as I kind of stood on the edge and just laughed at him and he didn't catch that <laughs> that flatfish. So you know, lots of really, really vivid memories. And you know, we had this whole campaign where um, my favourite things were the hermit crabs because I thought they were so cool. The way his legs would appear and they kind of scuttle away. And we had a couple of hermit crabs in our tank, but then we didn't. We only had one because the fish had eaten it because oh, no. it had tried to change its shell. Oh, no. So what I hadn't appreciated at that age is is obviously I thought the shells looked a bit different. Is when they're ready to change the shell they've outgrown it they just flip it off and they go find another one which is usually not such a problem but if they're that far away yeah but if they're in a tank (laughs) and there aren't any shells that became pretty fast Uh fish food so we had to have a kind of big campaign to save the other hermit crab and find the right (laughs) shell so that we could save the hermit crab which of course we we did manage to do and i got to see a hermit crab with no no shell on (laughs) Which is very weird. It looks like alien. It looks oh, really strange. Yeah. And really it's peculiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of really kind of pink and shiny. Is what I remember. Now my 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 sort of remembering of it because I was very young. So Ian was so interested in that. That was my brother's name, and he went off to university to study zoology, and I stayed at home. Now, unfortunately, when he was away, he came back one year and he had this sort of lump on his arm which he gave a name that was the um, and I was jealous because I wanted a lump on my arm as well but unfortunately the lump was cancer so Ian did spend a few years after that being very very sick and unwell and I was very confused and very angry and unfortunately Ian didn't survive um, but I think this ch- this whole experience of seeing Ian kind of live with cancer and seeing all the effects of the treatments on him really changed my focus because up to that point I'd really loved zoology and biology but now I just thought well why why is his immune response you know because I, I, I didn't know even know if I knew what the immune response but why is his body not dealing with it and you know why do does he get all the symptoms he gets when he has all these therapies so I started looking around at courses and seeing what kind of aspect of biology was going to help me answer some of these questions and immunology was still quite new so there weren't very many universities <laughs> that offered it uh, but I did find a university which of course was Strathclyde that did offer it but the the payback from that was that I had to do a joint honours degree um. I had to do biochemistry and immunology <laughs> which meant ones. I yeah, had yeah, yeah. twice the lectures wow. of all the biochemists <laughs> but when I started immunology actually studying it I did realise this was very much the the subject for me and and I'm, you know, obviously I'm very lucky now because I've got my own lab and (laughs) and we are researching immunology, so that's... And it sounds like to some extent as well as inspiring you as far as choosing immunology goes, also maybe a bit of your kind of love for science communication and public engagement might have come from that time? Absolutely, that's absolutely the case. I think because I hadn't appreciated that 
that wasn't the norm to have somebody who would be so endlessly patient <laughs> as my big brother was. And when I went to university, a lot of my flatmates were doing non-science degrees. They were doing history and, and art and things like that, which I thought was amazing. You know, I totally wanted to know more about what they were doing and they totally didn't want to know what I was doing. And I was like, but science is cool and everybody should love science. And they're like, no, Sheena, <laughs> it's just hard and wrong. And I just... It made me realize that not everybody had had that science advocate <laughs> in their life. And if you haven't had that, then maybe science will appear as wrong and hard. And Do you think that's what it is? Well, Do you think it's it? the difficulty factor? Because I'm always surprised that it doesn't take more of a kind of center stage culturally. But is that because people are just scared off at the school stage? I think that could be a factor. And I think maybe, you know, it's seen as, as it's only for the clever people. And I certainly wasn't necessarily the cleverest <laughs> and best at science in high school, particularly not physics. I'm very sorry, I really wasn't very good at physics, but I got better at physics. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's the curiosity and the mm -hmm. questioning, and that can be true of anything. So I think it's having the confidence to ask questions and not be frightened to get things wrong. And Children for sure have that. But you've been involved in the creation of some pretty cool resources, which I guess do turn what could be not necessarily interesting to everyone, science, into something interesting. So which of those are you the most proud of? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I thought I'd do it all... that way rather than me <laughs> listing them. They're all my little babies. Um... Well, go for the most recent, if that's <laughs> yeah. a better way of doing they're it. They're all happening, in, a lot of them are happening in tandem. I mean, I think... It, it's really interesting how, how a science project can evolve and have legs. Mm -hmm. So if I think back when I was starting in Manchester, that's really where I got started doing science communication because I, I really wanted to do it and this was a real opportunity to do it because Manchester University was very clear this was something they were interested in. And we were working on parasitic worm infections. Now I already said at the start of this <laughs> that, that these are pretty rare in the UK, although I have, must admit I've met a surprising large number of people <laughs> who do, who have experience with them. But they are generally speaking pretty rare. So for us to be able to share our research and learn from people with experience really made us have to think about who we were going to work with. So we were really excited when we got the opportunity to work with a group of, of immigrant communities mm -hmm. in Manchester. And through that, we developed an art science partnership. We went back to that group of, of people. So we made all these amazing art rangolis in the streets of Manchester, which was so fun and brought in so many varied people. But then through that, we sort of realized that there was lots of issues around the language mm -hmm. of science and the words that we use. So even for people who are learning English, they might not learn scientific or medical English. So then I, I worked with lots of PhD students and postdocs to create a bunch of resources and an English teacher who was just amazing. Um, and we created all these English resources that taught you the words, but then taught you things like the life cycles of how you got the infections and what your immune response mm -hmm. was doing so you could apply the words. And I'm very proud of, of that particular work. But through all those interactions and all this work's been happening over years, one of the things that, that emerged was a real curiosity from the people I was working with about allergies because they were annoyed they had allergies and they'd never had allergies and I think that was really my my impetus to also start thinking more about this question about why allergies occur which led me to co-develop and again it's working across lots of disciplines lots of computer scientists data scientists etc were involved in this and we co-developed with the public an app that could start to capture symptom data for allergies oh. um, and then we could use that app it's called britain breathing we could use that app to see what symptoms were happening at what time in what place and what other factors were there at the same time to start to ask questions about the things in the environment that might be important for triggering allergy symptoms. Oh, wow. So is that a sort of citizen science style project Absolutely. then? So it literally, if I was using the app, I would upload if I started to experience a symptom and what kind of data do you collect at that point? Because it's been co-designed, we now know that it needs to be really, really simple right. to use, with really, so it doesn't take a very long time to use. So all that, that we record currently, there's a, a modification just about to go online actually, um, is sneezing, <laughs> nose, eyes, um, chest, right. so breathing. So nose, eyes, breathing, wow. and, and how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's very simple, so you just click yes, no, yes, no, and then you get like a little kind of scale bar, one to three, 
So you okay. can say how, ba- how bad or, or worse these are. And then you get your own record. So you can look back and go, oh, so last week I was really wheezing. What was I doing then? So you can ask questions about your, your own symptoms. But we get an approximate location data. So then working with all the environmental scientists, we've, we can get information about what, what factors were present. So you map against like pollen count yeah. and that sort of thing. And different pollutants and things. Oh. So we're starting to do that analysis. So the first thing we did was analysis to see whether it was sensible data. So did it, <laughs> did it generate sensible data? So the, um, we, we published a paper on that and looked that we looked at things like GP prescription <laughs> records for, for antihistamines, etc. Um, and also kind of the seasons where we were seeing peak symptoms where they mm-hmm. kind of with what we would expect for example would we see a big peak in April when we know tree pollen is pretty rife yeah. would we see a big peak in June when grass pollen is pretty rife and we do <laughs> and it, it, it correlated beautifully with prescription data so now we're kind of trying to, to link that with different pollutants we've been doing some analysis there we've also got a version that's going to be launching in Brazil soon to look but it's not going to be as much capturing allergies because they don't recognize that allergies are an issue but they know they get breathing problems so that's going to be looking at kind of breathing issues and we're also going to be looking at tiredness because our our allergy community say tiredness is one of their biggest factors so there will be an additional parameter so it's all kind of happening so I think all the stuff around education still happening but then we've got this other project so I just think I'm really lucky to be able to do these things. Do you feel like you have to go out and sort of counter some of the scientifically inaccurate messages that are getting out there, especially with like what you study? There's a whole lot out there that is probably not spot on. So do you feel the need to somehow counteract that maybe? Sometimes, yeah. I think that can be a really important area as well. People having access to good information. I think, for example, in vaccine advocacy, there's a lot of people who are very uncertain and unsure about whether vaccines are safe and right for them. And by giving good and clear information about, you know, how they work, what they're doing, you hope that you can start to kind of settle those because we really shouldn't be seeing people dying of measles, which is what we're seeing, unfortunately. Quite a lot of science communication almost becomes entertainment by simplifying the stories. You know, you look at the front page of a newspaper and it will tell you cure for cancer on the horizon when the scientists, if they told that story, would tell it very differently. Mm-hmm. But to engage people, you almost have to give it that story. So how do you tread that line where you... I think, I think you've, you've got to be responsible. So you've got to be accurate. I think you also have to be respectful because actually my experience is people ask some amazing mm. questions and by necessarily dumbing everything down, you're not giving people the benefit of the doubt just how clever Mm -hmm. they are and how quickly they can seize on concepts and build on concepts so for sure you have to start simple but also not lie it's building kind of the layers of complexity and perhaps enabling them to make their own links Mm -hmm. and you know that's one of the things we actually did in them those infection education classes that we were doing is we we'd introduced lots of ideas around the immunology and then we actually had one um lesson where we gave them like a, it wasn't a real paper but it was this sort of simplified version of paper that was essentially exploring the hygiene hypothesis and the old friends hypothesis and then we asked them what they thought about it and then they started discussing the ideas about oh it looks like there could be something linked between the parasites mm. and the allergies <laughs> that's re- and, the, and they were coming up with it so we were not so telling them yeah. but they were coming out with because they'd had all the information they were able to build the links what you say about not underestimating people who aren't within the you know science is something we see time and time again with pint of science like at these events you can have we we didn't i don't think realize until pint of science started to get going how much of an appetite there was to actually meet scientists some of the issues that people enjoy talking about are kind of the the more difficult parts of being a scientist so for example for early careers researchers one of the things that comes up a lot is um sort of imposter syndrome and the feeling that maybe you've ended up working in the world of science by by accident and you're not actually clever enough to be that there goes away. i was gonna say has that gone away for you or is that no, still not at all i had a crashing case of it just uh, two weeks ago i was talking at an event in cambridge there were lovely lovely people but there were a lot of people who had nobel prizes there yeah. so i have a massive case of imposter syndrome I was very, very terrified. They probably didn't too. Oh. Yeah, yeah. They were probably like, oh, give me this prize. <laughs> this, is, this is an accident. When are we going to take it away? And, no, yeah. I didn't enjoy that. And art. I got asked a question about farts from the audience. <laughs> that, that, that was my kind of grounding. <laughs> We've all seen it in lectures within departments in science. You see a professor at the front or a, or a 
postdoc or a visiting lecturer giving a talk and you look around and there's all these people sort of nodding and confidently sort of you know stroking their beards and actually you ask after the lecturer you know do you understand that and they're like oh I lost him at slide three <laughs> <laughs> spent the whole, the whole talk trying to catch up I sometimes wish people could relax about it <laughs> to go back to your sort of scientific genesis do you remember publishing your first scientific paper has that stuck with you oh gosh yeah that was so exciting <laughs> <laughs> yeah my first paper was about toxoplasma yes. gondia which is a, a parasitic infection it's very very common most of us have it about one in three people in the UK have it and it forms a lifelong infection once we have it so it's your friend for life (laughs) it can infect any mammal that we've looked at so it's incredibly successful and you can get it in lots of ways so the only animal it can sexually replicate in is the cat replicates in the cat gut so that means the cat is able to excrete we're back to poo again. The infectious stage of the parasite, which will then become infective in the environment after a few days, and it will survive in the environment for a remarkably long time. So if you then eat something contaminated with this infective stage, which are called oocysts, and they're microscopic, you don't know that they're there. So if you've been gardening, you haven't washed your hands, or you've had some veg and you haven't washed it properly, you can become infected, and so can any other mammalian species. Once it's inside that, we call it an intermediate host, it will then change into another form, and it will ultimately insist and form little cysts in your muscle and also the central nervous system and the brain. And so if you then eat one of these infective (laughs) hosts, if you eat the meat, you can then pick up the infection again that way. So that's two main routes that we can catch it through soil contaminated things or through eating partially cooked meat. But it's only cats that can... So when it's sitting in all these other organisms, it's just... It's replicating, but it's haploid. So it's uh, asexual replication. Right, OK. Sorry, I should have made that. It's waiting to go back to a cat. It's waiting, to go back to, <laughs> waiting to go back to a cat. There's a, another route of infection. So if somebody was pregnant, it's possible for them to transfer it to the to the unborn child. So That's it, it the causes. only context I'd heard of it in, that it's really dangerous in situations like that. I also have something in my head about losing eyesight. That's Yeah, so that's one of the places it can, it can insist, is, is, is around the eyes. But typically our immune system will keep those cysts quite well under control, but then the other risk is if your immune system declines, so you become immunosuppressed either through infection or through, say, an immunotherapy, mm-hmm. or then your immune system can decline. So it was one of the biggest causes of death when we had the AIDS epidemic right, a few okay. years ago. So very famously, Tommy in train spotting actually dies of toxoplasmosis, of which is why I play that clip to my undergraduate students <laughs> when I teach them about toxoplasmosis. And you got a Scotland reference in. So you yeah. did get a Scotland <laughs> reference in. And there's been some ideas that this parasite can affect behaviour. So if you look in rodents, which of course are common cat food, because parasites insisting in the brain, the idea is it's affecting their behaviour, it's making them more risks taking, they've got higher levels of adrenaline, decreased dopamine, so they just like open spaces they also kind of get a bit of a sexual kick from smelling cat wee so they really like cat wee don't we all yeah, yeah that's <laughs> and of course that makes them a little bit more likely to be predated by right. cats and oh, then the parasite can, back in the cat again can get back in the cat complete its oh. sexual life cycle so then the idea has been well it's also in our brains and we can be predated by cats, but not usually domestic cats. <laughs> it's unusual. But the large cats can also yeah. um, spread the parasite as well, although they don't tend to uh, Nature's not scary, right? It's terrifying. Um, so there have been some researchers that have suggested that there are changes to, to human behaviour as well. However, that research is disputed, and the biggest ever study that was done a few years ago didn't really find a strong link between the parasite and behavioural changes and that might be because actually the immune response in humans isn't quite the same as mice because mice have evolved particular strategies to recognise the parasite that we don't have so maybe that could be one of the, the explanations for that so I, I don't think you have to panic too much but if you do want to eat rare steak um, cooking the parasite will will work so if you cook your steak completely that will be fine however also freezing steak will work so you can freeze your steak and then 
have it rare oh, and you oh. shouldn't <laughs> get the infection but it will be in most meats that we buy wow okay. yeah. but you're not getting people feeling a desperate urge to go and like find a tiger and make friends <laughs> no I don't I don't I don't think anybody's looked at no. that, that aspect of it but it has been linked with things like um, risk of car accidents and uh-huh. schizophrenia and things but uh, tenuous the question that I was set was asking questions about whether males or females responded differently and I was doing this as a piece of voluntary research because I basically left applying for my PhD really really late because I wasn't sure if I wanted to do one and so I was on the door. <laughs> I was was unemployed and I'd been out for a drink with a friend and I was on the underground because it was in Glasgow and on the underground and I see one of my old lecturers and he's one of the younger ones who demonstrated for us and so he was a little bit more approachable but still utterly terrifying. Um, but because I'd had a beer, I was like, hi! <laughs> and he was asked me what I was doing and I sort of said, well, you know, I really want to get some work experience. I think I, I do want to do a PhD but, you know, most of them have been advertised now so I've left it too late and he said oh well you know I think I've got some stuff you could do in the lab but I can't pay you and I went okay and he said I can pay you in beer and I went brilliant <laughs> <laughs> so I, I started working for for him and Craig, Craig Roberts I'm still good friends with him now and I was looking at to see whether males and females responded differently to the parasite and to our surprise <laughs> they did and that was actually also quite terrifying because that was the first moment that I got something that we didn't expect so I got the wrong result <laughs> it was not the predicted result and I remember sort of printing off my data and kind of tiddling down the, the corridor and I'm not knocking on on Craig's door but also the other the senior prof Jim was there and going Handing them the data and <laughs> thinking, because it. Yeah. it was completely the opposite of what we expected, and um, they kind of paused, and there was a sort of sharp intake of breath, and I thought, oh, that's it, I'm so out of here. No more and they were like, yeah. let's brainstorm. And we stuck it up on the pin board, <laughs> and then we brainstormed as to what we thought it meant, and then I did a bunch more experiments and. I went off and did my PhD and the paper was published not long after. But that was my real eureka moment because I was like, it was never the wrong result. Yeah. It, it was, was our interpretation. It's about oh. kind of, yeah, the, the brainstorming is the fun bit, right? With science, it's the bit where you don't get the answer you expect. <laughs> I guess now you've got a lot of supervising responsibilities, yeah. teaching responsibilities. Do you enjoy that side of your work, sort of moving out of a lab and towards the more sort of helping other people become scientists? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's brilliant. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. I love this moment so you know they'll be they'll be learning things and they might be a bit uncertain and then there comes the moment they're like they walk in and they're going I think we need to do this and there's like the switch where they start to take more control and it's kind of watching kind of nurturing them until they get to that moment and I love that moment it's the bit that I'm kind of like and my, one of my um PhD student she was having a bit she things hadn't worked as well for her for a little bit and we had this little chat and she said why'd you do it and I said this thing to her and then about a month later she got her switch (laughs) and I'm like you remember that thing we were talking about she's going you're so right (laughs) because she just had that kind of breakthrough moment where just everything started to work and she was like right we're going to do this and we're going to do this and you're going to do that so to, to see that is a real privilege and to be able to sort of see undergraduates get excited about the things that you're telling telling them and seeing all the amazing things that they do i'm really lucky that quite a lot of my undergrads have kept in touch and mm-hmm. in the students that have tutored or the students that have um, done projects and some of the things they do are just brilliant because it's not just about doing research there's so many different careers mm-hmm. like science communication yeah. <laughs> that you're all doing but um you know, getting involved with clinical trials and getting involved with patent law. Some of them have done some absolutely remarkable things. So you just feel really privileged that you get to play a tiny part. I like to think of it as sort of like the admin paradox where the, the better you get at a job, the less you actually get to do the job. Yeah. So, like, is that something you're sort of Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sort of in the lab yeah. as much as I used to. So when I first started as a lecturer, I was in the lab a lot. And now it's much more intermittent. I can still do it. <laughs> and there's certain experiments that we'll all chip in for and we'll all, we'll all kind of dive in and help. So certain things that, that I'm still completely good at but this element of I just don't know where anything is in the lab so it's just like oh no she's in and I'm gonna be like where's the pipettes where's the where's it which is a bit annoying because I used to be kind of like yeah it's like that and obviously some techniques have moved on a bit so I kind of have to tell people certain techniques that I'm good at 
and say, but obviously there's probably refinements <laughs> that you'll have learned since, since I was uh, um, doing it. But it's nice to sort of be in the lab occasionally. And, and there was certainly a paper we had a couple of, probably came out about a year ago, and both the postdocs involved were on maternity leave. So I totally did some of those experiments, <laughs> which is quite scary because I was doing really big experiments. But it was like, well, you clearly can't come in yeah. and help. And we had kind of reviewers comments. So I was completely like back in the lab again. This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great resource if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and then explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, makes learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. And they've got a course on computational biology and the unravelling of what makes us tick, which you're bound to love. Especially since using the link in this pod- podcast description will get the first 200 users 20% off their premium plan so we find ourselves at the end of the episode yeah we do are you going to get a fecal transplant Callum um, I would get a fecal transplant if it was a mate like you I do have a particularly good bio and if we could use your blender as well <laughs> I'd be up for it then I mean that sounds delightful um, no I won't be doing that in a hurry so Sheena was fantastic it has been fabulous listening to Sheena talk I, like, I didn't realise that we humans are such carriers of such wonderful diversity. Well, it's funny you should say that because I feel like I'm carrying a diverse array of bad things right now. I hope that didn't come across too much to Sheena. I am experiencing one hell of a cold uh, today and I hope poor podcast listeners that didn't come across too much in my uh, question style today. But we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Planet of Science podcast. If you did, please tell your friends about it. Do spread the word on Twitter using the hashtag Pintcast19. And if you also tag at Pint of Science in any tweets, we'll make sure that we uh, give them the love and attention they deserve. Absolutely. And please go on there and rate it, if you will. Like, and definitely head to uh, pintofscience.co.uk as well and check out the festival. Hello everyone, I'm Sam, the producer of the Pint of Science podcast. I usually sit behind the desk whilst Callum and Jim do the talking. But I do have a podcast of my own, and since you're clearly into learning and having a bit of fun, you might just like it. It's called That Was Genius, and it's a history podcast in which my friend Tom and I surprise each other every week with a funny, gruesome, or just plain odd historical story. Other than having a weekly theme, the rest is up for grabs, so there's lots of silly jokes and plenty of dubious accents. A bit like these. Mais oui, these eight-month-old donuts, I have never tested anything like it. Sacre bleu! I've never tested anything so hard. I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. It's a beautiful. It is a multi-sensory experience. It is wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. The, the smell, the sight. Oh. If you're interested in finding out more, search your favourite podcast app for That Was Genius or go to www.thatwasgeniuspodcast.com.